Hi, this is Tamsin Granger. This is Dan Abuhoff. With Tamsin and Dan read the paper on Sunday, April 14th. Right. 2019. We've been watching golf. Golf, of course. Of course, because it's the Masters. The Masters. The tournament like no other. The run for the Azaleas. <clears throat> the run for the Azaleas. Well, you've been watching it. You're uh, quite the golf fan. Yeah, well, it just seems it's been actually quite exciting. Yeah, it often is. It often is, but neither of us. We should we should disclose neither of us are golfers. But the, the fact of the matter is, you can kind of sucked in watching these guys. Well, and just this year because there's a lot of it was well, exciting. It's a lot of drama. Anyway, this year is the story of Tiger Woods, and everyone by the time this is released will have read many many articles. At least had the opportunity to read many many articles about Tiger Woods. A comeback for the ages. Tiger Woods. For those of you who have been, I don't know, snoozing. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, somewhere, somewhere, but uh, not tuning into the no- local media for the last 20, 25 years, was uh, the greatest golfer of his time, was arguably the number one sports figure in the United States, if not the world, uh, in going into the early 2000s, uh, you know, an icon. And, uh, and then he disappeared from the scene for reasons we'll come back to in a moment. But the fact of the matter is... tremendous fall from grace yeah well uh, in addition to let me set the stage physical difference yeah we'll we'll, we'll, we'll come back to that the real point is there's a huge gap here so what you have is you know the major tournaments are the four majors the masters the u.s open uh, the pga and the british open those are the ones that really count for the guys who are the the big time golfers and he is second to uh jack nicholas now in terms of majors he's won 16 over his career he won a number of them at a very young age uh, however, he won today, he won the Masters, but he had not won a major for 11 years, 11 years. And he had not won a Masters since 2005, 14 years. Uh, and you have this huge gap, and what is that huge gap about? And that's what you were referring to. If you were watching... I mean, he was truly a phenom, so much so that uh, my father... <laughs> instructed Not, us oh. to uh, tell our kids forget about right. this water polo nonsense. Right. You know, have your kids play golf, and he didn't so that they can be multi billionaires like, like, like Tiger. And uh, he didn't play golf either. So, uh, yeah. So no, my father had no interest in golf. If, but he was interested in success. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So and if you, truly, Tiger was a huge success. Well, uh, if you watched this telecast, uh, you would have heard uh, quite a bit about this being the most amazing comeback of all time. Uh, And you would have heard his uh, absence from the scene attributable to physical ailments, particularly back problems and secondarily knee problems. So you would have understood it to be a tremendous, uh, basically overcoming of physical ailments and disabilities. Um, a physical a, rehabilitation. Exactly. And uh, laudable without any reservation. And of course, that's not the real story, right? Well, it's not the complete story. Not the complete story. Uh, you know, he had all kinds of things going right. on. He And uh, I mean, marital difficulties, a scandal yeah. that happened around Thanksgiving. I remember it was that was so long ago. Uh, uh, your family was here right. uh, in Pennsylvania. Yeah, he was. He was it, we, scandal's the word. He was, yeah. a, he was a pariah. He was a pariah. People wouldn't mention his name. And, and, and golf, the popularity of golf suffered as a result. The number one guy was a pariah and people lost interest and were not well, telling... people were already losing interest in you golf. Think so? Were they? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Younger really? people, 
um, golf has been no, but, diminishing. But Tiger brought it back up. Tiger brought it back up. And then when the fall from grace, as you described, people like your dad weren't telling their grandchildren to play golf anymore. Uh, whatever it was, uh, and we're not going to go into great detail here, but it's just what's stunning is the complete absence, you know, the complete uh, vanishing of any recollection of what really happened. And everyone's sitting there talking about this in this telecast for an hour and a half about, oh, what a back problem he had. You're going, what? Well, <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, but he did have a back problem. He did have a back no problem. about that, but, but he had other problems. And yeah. he really had lost his mojo. He was... Um, even, you know, having difficulties with the various uh, substances. Right. Like, was he taking oh, that's right. his back? He, that, you remind yeah. me. He was pulled over at one point. Yeah. They didn't know if he was drunk or on drugs or whatever. I mean, he went to the bottom. That wasn't part of the story. Yeah, yeah. his Look, reputation had completely listen, gone off the rails. I'm, I have nothing against and Tiger yet, Woods. I'm happy he won. But uh, it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. Well, it was just interesting the way, uh, you know, the... Uh, the media right. and uh, the PGA right. is spinning it. And uh, you can't really blame them. But it's also interesting that, I mean, people were there cheering, going That's crazy. Right. Crazy. Unreserved, unreserved enthusiasm. Um, so his and ten years image ago, lives on. Ten years ago, people were, were turning their backs on him. And I mean golf fans. Um, so, you is know. Is that really true? Yeah, it is true. It is true. It is true. It wasn't just a matter that of he wasn't winning. It wasn't just a matter that uh, he was hurt or was in a scandal. People were disgusted, and they felt they had been misled. Uh, they felt he was a fraud, and they had been. I'm telling you, there were strong negative feelings. Look, maybe this teaches us what the the rehabilitation period is for a Me Too type situation. I don't know, but I think we're going to read a lot about it in the next few weeks. That, that's all I'm guessing. Okay, well, that'll be interesting. Yeah. But anyway, so we were sucked in. We were watching it. We were sucked in, and it was exciting. So, But that's not the big sports story. The big sports story, for those of us who follow these things, and no one's more on top of this than one uh, Sadie Ackman. Well, Hoff. that's true. I, I talked to Sadie this weekend. I said, so uh, have you been watching the Masters? And she and straightened Sadie you said, out. No, I'm <laughs> watching the hockey. Hockey playoffs. This is hockey playoffs time, people. Hockey playoffs. There is nothing more intense than hockey playoffs, and there is no story that's more compelling than the story of the Tampa Bay Lightning. That's right. Apologies to City on the Toronto Maple Leafs. Apologies to New York on the New York Islanders. They're both interesting and doing well. But the Tampa Bay Lightning <laughs> is the story, and they're the story for two reasons. One is an article that you showed me, Tamsin, about how that franchise became a resurgent franchise. Now, think of the challenge there. They start a franchise that plays ice hockey some uh, more than 20 years ago in Tampa Bay, which is, you know, it doesn't freeze over too often in Tampa Bay. So there wasn't that much interest. No, there wasn't any interest. Although Phil Esposito was was among those who thought this is a good place to do it. Phil much more revered as a hockey player than a businessman. I I will tell you that. Uh, Also a hockey enthusiast. You remember his brother Tony was a goalie. Do you remember that too? The Esposito clan. Right. Totally right. hockey. I, what I remember is uh, Jesus saves, but Esposito pokes Sco- it in on the rebound. Esposito scores on the rebound. Yeah. <laughs> that was a bumper sticker. Uh, yes, Phil Esposito was behind Tampa Bay, and they had some early success. They started in the early 90s, but by the by the time you got to the early 2000s, the success had petered out. And and you know something? There are several South Southern teams in uh in the in the NHL 
And that would be, uh, there's a team in Carolina, there's a team in Arizona, there's another team called the Florida Panthers. Uh, they don't do well. None of them mm-hmm. do well. The only Southern team that does well, the Tampa Bay Lightning. There are several sports teams in Tampa Bay, uh, in different, different sports besides hockey, uh, baseball, football. They don't do well. The only team that does well, again, the Tampa Bay Lightning. Why, you pointed out to me, is because of their owner. a fellow named Jeff Vinnick, who is one of those hedge fund billionaires, uh, which we all like to talk about, uh, who was in Boston and decided, number one, he wanted to buy a hockey team. Number two, that the team he wanted to buy was Tampa Bay, in part because he was determined to move. To, to wherever his team was. Exactly, and he was more eager to move to Tampa Bay than to move to uh, Secaucus or someplace near wherever the Devils were playing. So he moved to Tampa Bay, and he invested in the team, an enormous amount of money, $75 million, they say, in the Wall Street Journal. Continues to invest, continues to invest in youth hockey and charitable causes around Tampa oh, Bay. Oh, that $75 million was in reference to the, the, the stadium. stadium. Yeah, that's right. That's uh, right. I'm not sure that was all his money, but... I, I could easily he spent see a lot of money. He's invested more than that because Esposito, uh, at a certain point, had raised $75 million to buy, to buy, the, buy team. the team. Right. Even though he was begging to buy the team, even though he knew it was valued much higher than right. that. And the, the other fun thing that uh, was in that article was that, uh, you know, uh, in, in trying to figure out whether to even start a team there, they consulted uh, a guy. Um, Oh yeah, Henry Paul. Right, and uh, he said, "Well, you know, you know, will Tampa Bay go for a hockey team?" He said, "Well, we love <clears throat> football, we love car crashes, we love boxing, we love wrestling. Seems like with hockey, you got all that." Exactly. Um, it's all so. logic, but it uh, doesn't necessarily work. So here's the here's the problem now, though. Okay, so they had. A great season. They're a successful franchise. They've had some, you know, 50 sellouts in a row. The place is going crazy. And they win this season 12 more games than any other team in the entire league. And when you win the most games in the season during the regular season and get the most points, you win in the NHL something called the President's Cup. And you know who cares about winning the President's Cup? Who? Nobody. Because <laughs> the President's Cup is the regular season. What people care about in the NHL is the playoffs. And the President's Cup victor is top-seeded, but in order to be a successful season, you have to prevail in the playoffs, and that doesn't happen. In the last, oh, uh, what do we have, 32 years, uh, the 32 years that they've awarded the President's Cup, the President's Cup winner has won the Stanley Cup only one quarter of the times, one out of every four. Uh, So Tampa Bay is dealing with a situation where they're kind of expected to win, the fans hope that they win, and uh, they go charging into the playoffs, and they lose their first playoff game to the Columbus Blue Jackets. Mm-hmm. And then they play their second playoff game, and they lose that game too. They're down 2 nothing. They could get knocked out in the first round of the playoffs. And that kind of thing happens in hockey, where a super, super team just gets off to a bad start and stumbles, and then it gets in their head, and they get knocked out by a team that barely got into the playoffs. I hope that doesn't happen at Tampa Bay, but that is... The big story of the playoffs and the NHL playoffs are the biggest thing going on right now. There's nothing as intense in sports as the NHL playoffs. More intense than baseball World Series, more intense than the NBA playoffs. Because that's a very tough physical game. Those guys grind it out. They all grow playoff beards. They're unrecognizable <laughs> by the end. Well, did we give uh, Jeff Vinnick enough credit for everything he did to... Uh, um 
turn that team around in terms of local popularity? I mean, they went from 3,000 season ticket holders to over 15,000. Yeah, right. Um, They have sold out like 200 games. 200 games? 200 games? And the only other team... Teams that do that are like the typical, Top you know, teams. Detroit, Chicago, the, the old line teams, yeah, hmm. Philadelphia, etc., yeah. Montreal, um, and uh, you know, the, he's really made a tremendous investment right. in the community. Well, and you know, what he's really involved the community. They give away equipment. You know what it know? suggests is that what? you can do it. It suggests you can do it anywhere. It suggests yeah. that you can take any sport and in any city, and right. if you're willing to invest enough money in it. You can make, make a, it work, a but it's a lot of money. Like Las Vegas. Well, Las Vegas has been terribly successful, but that was that was they had success in in the rink. I mean, mm-hmm. what's tougher is to take a longer slog and right. to really say we're not going to win. I mean, this is what the Islanders did years ago when I was growing up. Islanders were were a, uh, a franchise that was an expansion franchise, and last place, last place, last place in the shadow of the uh, Rangers, and then they got it together and they won four Stanley Cups in a row. It's crazy. But mm-hmm. they said, we're going to invest and invest. You can do it. But mm-hmm. it takes patience and it takes money. This guy's uh, got both, I guess. All right. All right. So uh, we're going to turn to books. Books. Books? Yes. Time to talk about books? Yes. Um, well, let's talk about books. Let's talk about food books. How about that? Sure. Big article in uh, the... Um, I think, uh, what was it, the New York Times, Times book about section. cookbooks. Yeah. But, uh, eh. <laughs> you know, none of them really, uh, you know, there were some nice pictures from them. Well, I said... If, you, if you're interested, go read the article. I, New York I Times pointed out to you, it's my subtle way of saying you might want to make this. Nobody uses cookbooks did you look, anymore. Did you take a, take a look at the I picture look, of the guava know, cake? The guava cake? It just... Guava cake? Guava cake yeah. is right there. All right, you go... Be my guest. Go ahead. Make guava cake. All right. Um, but it, here's the problem. It, it just seems so extravagant to uh, buy a whole book and then make one or two recipes or yeah. never make any recipes. Just sit there and look at the pictures. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I, eh, that uh, aspect of uh, but, but writing did... may be doomed. But there was a review also in all the books everywhere. Tremendous amount of press for Ruth Reichel. And uh, her latest memoir, uh, Save Me the Plums. And that is the story of the demise, the rise and demise of uh, Gourmet Magazine. And uh, she was editor there for a while and was there, was out on a book tour promoting the latest um, Gourmet Magazine cookbook. Um, She was on the road when uh, they let her know that the uh, magazine was shutting down. Well, well hold on. So just to bring me, let me say that Ruth Reichel's the one that wrote Tender to the Bone. Yes. And so she was Tender the, at the Bone. Tender at the Bone. So one she of was her like earliest memoirs about the uh, restaurant reviewer for the New York Times. She was, yeah, she was originally out in L.A. Then she, she, she right. was at the New York so Times. So I read her. She's a very good writer. And, and, she is a very good writer. But she left to go to the magazine. Is that it? She left the Times right. to go to the magazine. Right. She knew nothing about magazines. Right. And uh, let me just tell you this. <laughs> I actually have been listening to the Audible version. Yeah. Of? Of... Save Me the Plums. Oh, is that right? Yes. Oh, I didn't know that. She is the narrator. Ruth is? Yes. Hmm. 
and it's terrific. Okay. Okay? It is absolutely terrific. There is one chapter called Severine that is completely exquisite. Yeah. Okay? Had me in tears on the drive home on Route 95 from uh, my work at Newtown, PA. Okay. Um, so, it, you know, I mean... It, she is a very it's good, good writer. Right? I'll tell you that. Good. Yeah. I mean, there are some chapters that are, you know, less enchanting than others. Yeah. But it is especially delightful to listen to. Because uh, she's reading. You know, the writer yeah. of a memoir. Yeah. Um, well, that uh, means more if the writer is. It, it's almost like a podcast. It's like a very good long podcast. Right. This right. person is in your car or you know in your home talking to you right. Right. and telling you these it's, stories. It's different than she's it. a wonderful storyteller. Yeah. Her all her books. Yeah. Uh, I think I've read almost all of them, have been quite enjoyable, including she wrote a novel, Delicious, oh, that wasn't, to some extent, based on her experiences in, in the magazine, uh, at Gourmet. Yeah. yeah. And that I uh, listened to when I was on the road uh, driving home that time from Atlanta. Oh, really? By myself, uh-huh. 12 hours. When your husband Ruth couldn't fly out to get you. were there. Yeah. <laughs> together in the car so i you know i would definitely recommend uh save me the plums by ruth reichel all right Uh, you know she has a tremendous enthusiasm for food she's down to earth uh her big uh uh, call to fame as the uh, new york times critic was she'd go in disguises she would go to a fancy restaurant disguised as, as random uh, middle-aged midwestern tourist uh, on a splurge and see how she got treated oh, really? and uh, and she had other disguises as well uh, and that that would always be kind of fun and would resonate <clears throat> okay well the other book thing that jumped out at us had to do with all the articles about robert caro uh and by that i mean an article in the new york times uh, about his new book called working and not one, but two separate articles in two separate sections of the Wall Street Journal this weekend about, about Robert Carroll, which led you to observe that he is the best uh, public relations uh, help there is, right? Yeah, um, probably just edging out Ruth Reichel, who has been everywhere with her new book. I don't know about edging. I've, I've this seen is... her face all over the globe. Yeah, but see, people read the, the Ruth Reichel stuff. I wonder who reads Robert Carroll, though I actually know some people who do. So... Uh, Look, here's the deal with Robert Carroll, and I think most people know it. Uh, He is an extremely thorough, meticulous researcher. He writes extremely long books. They're on history. As a matter of fact, they're only on two subjects. He only writes on two things. He's written on Robert Moses, and he's written on Lyndon Johnson, and that is it. All right, so this is another Lyndon Johnson book? No. No, no, no. This book is not. This book is did working. Did we talk about this already? We did. We, we did. did. On, we did because, the there was all, because a lot of his fans were, were ticked off that he wasn't working on the Johnson book, that he took this flyer to work on the working book. But it gives an opportunity. I mean, no one loves this book. People kind of like this book. But it gives, it, 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 it's an easy, easy to write about it because it talks about his method. And his method uh, is, it's interesting. I mean, uh, it doesn't require deep thinking, like reading about Lyndon Johnson. So what is his method? Why does it take him so long to write books? Well, it turns out it doesn't take him long to write. He writes very quickly. It's the research. It's the research. It's the research. Well, I thought, I saw the one Wall Street Journal article. Yeah. uh, Because it's kind of cute. It tells about uh, how he literally writes. 
yeah. that he has a typewriter. Yeah, yeah. And people kept sending him the typewriters. He has a 2010 right. something or other. The Smith Corona. He, uh, people send them, send him their old ones. He says he gets two kind of letters. Right. One is, I've got this typewriter. Maybe you could use it. And the two is, I've got this typewriter. Uh, would you like to buy it for $4,000? Right, exactly. So, uh, you know, he, uh, I mean, that is part of it. Uh, and I was going to talk about that. I'm glad you did. Um and his method actually doesn't make any sense. Uh, does it have to? It makes sense to him. No, fine. It doesn't have to. Absolutely. He also uses cotton typewriter ribbon. Yeah, but, but let's start at the beginning. I mean, here's what he does, though. The first thing he does is he writes it out in longhand, and then he types it. Yes. Okay, this, he, you know, this takes a long time. And, and, and then... But types it on Smith Corona, and he says he does it very quickly. Yeah, yeah, really quickly. And then he gets it in the galleys, and he writes notes on the galleys. So I don't know. He thinks he's doing this fast. Maybe he is, but it strikes me as a very long process. But in any event, it's the research, and the one thing that comes out in terms of his discussion of the research, he's totally meticulous. He turns over every page. He interviews at great length. But the one thing that does come across and carry over is. Um, he says the trick to interviewing is to keep your mouth shut, basically, and what give people a chance to talk. And a lot of interviewers never, never get that. He doesn't even get it. So he's sitting there taking notes, and when he looks at his own notes, notes uh, that he's taking, he sees every few lines the letters S U S U S U. What does S U mean? It means shut up. He's telling he's himself, reminding himself, himself to shut up, and he's just listening. But he also says he never uses a recorder. Right. He finds that people never uh, get over the recorder. And he feels that creates a, a distance there yeah. or, you know, a not real total level of comfort yeah. as if they're just talking to him. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think that's that's interesting because especially during all these uh, sports interviews we've been seeing the last few weeks. Uh, and uh, you will often remark that the interviewer completely sets up what right. answer they want right. because, in the question. Because they guarantee that, that what's what, where they get the answer they decide is the right answer. So they get uh, it moves the it answer along they want. Because and they're he, not willing to trust the intelligence or the insight of the person or even the English language speaking skills of the person they're talking to. So they give them the answer. Right. And they go, oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's so he answer. just lets, just sits there and lets the interviewee fill the void. Well, the other thing, and they talk about his background and, uh, you know, his career and a couple of things come out of this. Number one, he did uh, early on uh, spend a fair bit of time at Newsday, which they describe as sort of a cerebral newspaper, which was news to me. It's the paper <laughs> I, I grew up reading in Long Island. It was a cerebral newspaper. Come on, Long Island, the it's home a, of the top, uh, you know, high school, uh, high school, and in, a cerebral newspaper. So I'm beginning to understand you how just it all. Didn't understand things what you grew up with was, was the, the best, the epitome, exactly you know? the best. But also, as you can imagine, a guy only writes about two things and takes forever on a Smith Corona. He didn't have any money. So uh, the article explains, and the book explains, I suppose, that they did sell his house at one point, and that uh, when he finally sold uh, part of, uh, I guess it was the Moses book for uh, to the New York Times, so they can put excerpts in. His wife said to him, "Great, now I can go to the dry cleaners again." So <laughs> he, I believe it. I yeah. believe he didn't have any money. Uh, so anyway, he's a nice guy. You know, he's very, uh, what can I say? He, he makes the point that he and his wife go to sleep every night listening to Arthur Rubenstein's performance uh, of Chopin, Pure Beauty. Arthur Rubenstein, you recall, we were talking about John Rubenstein's father a few weeks ago. 
who you saw at the uh, Bucks County Playhouse. But in any event, uh, you yeah, know. It, he's everything you would uh, sort of imagine him to be. Very professorial, yeah. very above it all, very and intellectual. Just very systematic. And, yeah. yeah. You know, um, but, uh, you know, works for him. Yeah, works for him. Back to food, right? Back to food. Well, I was going to... Are we to talk about more food? Yeah. Oh, that's right. Sure, go yes. ahead. More food. Yeah. Um, a bunch of funny articles, or, you know, interesting, intriguing articles this week in the New York Times, as usual. Um, you know, a more, more of those uh, studies that... It's hard to figure out if they mean anything, including one that said uh, people who, men who eat more than half a pound of red, white, or organ meat every day. I'm listening. What happens to them? A much higher percentage, um, you know, risk of uh, dying of heart disease than others. Oh, I thought you were going to say they're more interesting. (laughs) (laughs) Who eats? Half a pound of meat every day. Half a pound's a lot. Half a pound's an extraordinary amount. <coughs> every day is a lot. Uh, we too. used to measure out a quarter of a pound for our, our sandwiches at the Cranberry <coughs> yeah, yeah. food no, sampler. Right. And it was a huge pile. Yeah, these would be of big meat. people. Yeah. So, and, uh, you know, also what they discussed is uh, if the, the higher ratio of meat protein to plant protein. Yeah. You're going to tell me that's negative too? Uh, yeah. Okay. I don't think that's a huge surprise, but um, that's different from uh, just talking about you know the actual amount, yeah. half a pound or not. Yeah. Um, yeah, but I mean, so, the more you're I, reading, I, I mean, we should be aiming aiming to uh, enlarge our uh, yeah, idea I of mean, what is. Uh, but I mean, even the idea—it's totally obvious from a certain sense, and I guess it's right. And uh, they're saying it has profound implications. What you eat just means a lot in terms of the way you are. I yes, mean, yes. Uh, quite apart okay, from what you're eating. Before we get to that, but before we get to before that, before we get to yes, that, what? Okay. The other thing they had a headline about was omega threes actually help your asthma. I know you're into omega three. I've heard that before. This is the fish oil thing. Fish. Will save the world. Yes. So it's really. Not, when was the last time you saw a fish vegan, with if asthma? If you're a vegan, yeah. you you right. have a, an issue. Right. Okay. Um, but uh, you got to eat more fish. Yeah. Okay. All right. But again, the fundamental point being, they're even talking about you know. Well, there was a funny article. Things like depression. Now this was legitimately kind of amusing. Yeah. The headline for this article was. Uh, the right food for a good mood. Yeah. And it starts out with the story of a doctor gets a call from a patient who says, hey, I just ate 36 oysters. Yeah. That's a lot of oysters. It's a ton of oysters. Okay. And uh, he actually, um, he had gotten a recommendation uh, from uh, his psychiatrist <laughs> to eat oysters. Yeah. And he said, I often tell people eat oysters to improve their mood, uh, they rarely do they go out and uh, consume yeah. you know, three you know, dozen. You know, something, that, that's $100 worth of oysters. That's, uh, that's, that's quite a load. Yeah, that's that impressive. is. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. I want to meet this guy. Yeah. <laughs> He's probably... <laughs> but, uh, but anyway. So anyway, yeah. interesting article. And I think we've heard about this before. Yeah. Uh, the idea that what you eat affects your um mental uh, well-being right. and emotional well-being that there is they are finding out uh, that uh, um, well, people about, who have yeah. deficiencies yeah. in omega-3 fatty acids mm-hmm. 
are often found to have a higher incidence of depression right. and uh, risk of suicide. And so, uh, you know, again, the idea that uh, you um, might want to eat fish and other, um, actually, proteins uh, that contain the uh, omega-3s and vitamin B12, mm -hmm. uh, etc., will actually improve your microbiome, okay, the healthy gut. Mm -hmm. And they feel, honestly, they're, they're seeing research that says the healthy gut helps in processing neurotransmitters that regulate mood, like serotonin. Okay, so it's having an actual physiological effect on creating the good mood. Mm -hmm. Now, if you're a vegetarian or a vegan, you're a little bit at risk or in trouble uh, because plant-based proteins don't seem to have as much of that, that B12, etc., as the meat-based. Uh, but it is possible. You can take supplements, etc. So it, it just, you know, and, and I think we've, you know, for years we've been hearing, oh, you know, people eat too many uh, comfort foods, uh, the carbohydrates, etc. Um, they uh, end up uh, depressed and so forth and so yeah, on. Yeah, sure. But uh, again, healthy diet. Yeah. It's going to make you healthy in so many different ways. But I think it's, it's the idea that they specifically link it to uh, depression uh, is kind of interesting to me. Because they're, they're not doing this in an notional way. They're not just saying, well, gee, french fries, that always gives you some kind of a uh, glycemic rush. They're just saying, if they're linking it to depression, it's pretty serious, it seems to me. Or the, the absence of good nutrition. And, and, yeah. and, and generally, you feel better when you eat better. So I, I believe all that. Well, yeah. But the, you know, they're finding out there's a, an actual physiological yeah. reason for that. Yeah. Um, and uh, I think we're going to see more about this because there was also an interesting uh, article in The Economist by Peter Wilson about mm -hmm. the death of the calorie. Oh, really? And it's really about the history of the calorie and how... Um, oh, yeah, limited yeah. a concept yes. it is. You told me about this. Yeah, and uh, you know, I'm not really prepared to talk about it in depth because it's a complicated subject, yeah. but it was basically invented in the 19th century right. under rather primitive yes. well, I will, uh, circumstances. What I took away from our conversation, I know you're not going to go into it now, but the idea that warm toast has more calories than cold toast has me thinking that we have to revisit this whole thing. Yes, <laughs> that your body can more efficiently process yeah. reheated toast and reheated pasta. I'm, so, don't, I'm into, but so I, what does this mean? Don't eat fresh food? I was just going to say I'm into warm toast, so I have to worry about that. But, uh, Warmed over toast, yeah, well, reheated toast. Anyway, let's talk about beer, okay? Something I understand. Something that we all know is Something good for you. Exactly right. And the Times reinforcing that with an article about two... Uh, research scientists at the American Museum of Natural History. I'm calling this segment Drunk Historians. Oh, that, that's, that's you know, good. Remember, there, there's a show called Drunk History? Yeah? Yeah. Hmm. You, you Do I know that? It? That's uh, the way um, our, our family is learning history lately. Is that right? Yeah, Drunk History. Well, in any event, so it's Rob DeSalle and Ian Tattersall. And uh, they work for the Museum of Natural History. And uh, apparently every uh, Friday night, uh, they're both... Is this in New York? Yeah. 
the, in New York on the 75th Street, the real museum, the Museum of Natural History, where they, they do those movies. Out. You know, so here's the deal: instead of having the movies that come they on, have, buddy, let's do a little museum drinking. Right. Well, you remember Night at the Museum? Those movies. Yeah. Well, this is Night I didn't at the see Museum. Yeah, no, because this is the real life. Okay. And this, uh, these guys, instead of uh, you know seeing if Teddy Roosevelt's going to come to life, they actually go up into someone's office, and they crack out some beers. And they, they've written a bunch of books together. They, they talk about what kind of research they're doing. They're anthropologists going yeah. forward. They talk about some of their ideas. But they also talk about beer and the scientific uh, you know, underpinnings of beer, the relationships of different beers, because they're scientists. They can't look at things any other way. they got to take them apart no matter what they Did have. Did they ever see like Teddy Roosevelt? They haven't mentioned the that in the article. But the, uh, they've written two books uh, in 2015, A Natural History of Wine, and now they're coming out with A Natural History of Beer. They can't help themselves. They're going to take a scientific view of beer. And they sit there and they compare notes and they make fill up notebooks about everything they think about beers and they think about the hops in this particular beer and if it's related to is some this hops in another beer. Do they think about it or they do actual research? Are they just drinking they're, or they're, randomly there's a picture writing here. down they're, stuff? They're drinking and writing. As you can see from the photograph, they're in action there. And uh, they have created a field book, Logging Observations of Beer's Character and Taste. And they've done it for 200 different beers over the years. They try to sort out the relationships among beers, categorize them, treating them, them as organisms, or so they say. Uh, and DeSalle says, uh, look, we're not claiming it's great science, uh, but it's a cool thing to do. So... They're cool doing, for them. Cool for them. Yeah. But uh, you brought my attention to an article about something called a mild ale. Mild yes. ale. Yes. Did you know anything about mild ale? Yes. Yes. You'll be happy to know. How did you know, know about your mild husband ale? Because I drink one of the, the the principal ale they're talking about. I've had before. So ale, I generally don't go for. Mm, I don't know. It's, it's ale is generally bitter. Okay. Isn't it? Uh, I, you know, I think that's a gross generalization. It can be, but here's the deal. Actually. Ale, these mild ales are not that harsh tasting, hence they're called mild. Uh, they're generally English. Uh, a lot of the English ales are called bitters, but they really not are that bitter. As a matter of fact, one of the reasons they're mild is they're not as highly carbonated as some of the other beers. They're not as hopped up. They don't have a very strong flavor. They're supposed to be the kind of beers that you can drink all day, like a session beer. And Yeah, I did notice in the article they seem to have lower alcohol. They're about 4.5%. Which makes Some of them, them lower. Are even lower. Yeah, the ones they list there. So, but but so all this would be highly theoretical and of no interest if you couldn't get it in the United States. But in fact, there is a prominent brand that I've drunk in the United States called Yards Yards Brewing Company Brawler. How's that name? Brawler B R A W L E R four point two percent ABV, described as clean and crisp, less a chewy hunk of bread than a stack of snappy whole grain crackers. Uh, so there you go. I mean, that's the one to look for. I've had it. It's fine. It's uh, it's good. And that's a local company. Yeah. Oh, Philadelphia. That's, that's the yeah. Philly company. Okay. Yeah. So, so we want to uh, we want always, to support them. always support the local businesses. That's, that's right. And uh, that might be a fun thing to support. Yeah. Okay. Moving right along here. Yeah. Uh, we made an interesting discovery last week. And we did tell our listeners that we were going to head to the small screen and watch <laughs> head to uh, the small screen I like, yes yeah, and yeah. Uh, head and watch um our favorite uh killing eve killing eve weirdest spy show ever right um uh, and uh, it did not disappoint but uh, in uh, in our stupor in our television induced stupor 
after Killing Eve, uh, we did not turn off the TV, and what appeared but Discovery of Witches. Right. Which I was reluctant to watch, because that show is based on uh, the book series, the, the trilogy I read by Deborah Harkness, which I really did enjoy, because it, it combines... Uh, a lot of my favorite things, you know, hunky, wealthy guy meets, uh, you know, um, historian uh, in uh, England, uh, you know, and, you know, you know uh, rang a lot of bells for me. Um, and so since I like the books, that rang a lot I was, of bells. <laughs> yes, doesn't everybody dream of reading uh, a guy with limitless wealth yeah. who is also good looking, who is also cerebral? Jeff, I was thinking of Jeff Vinnick there. But go, go ahead. But yeah. Um, all right. I'll show you the pictures of Jeff Vinnick. Yeah. Nothing against Jeff. Yes. But he's no Matthew Good. All right. Well, um, well, let's get to Matthew Good in a second. But you read it in the book. You were saying that this you made a strong impression. I like the book, so I was worried about watching the show yeah. because you're mostly disappointed, aren't you? You're often how, disappointed. You're, you're often, often disappointed, disappointed at how your you know a favorite book is visualized right. by somebody but, else. But let's cut to the chase. You weren't disappointed. No, it was good. I yeah. think it's good. Yeah. It might be good. Yes. And you liked it because the main character actually loves to row. When when she has a tough the young woman. day, yes, right. she runs down to the Thames. Is it the Thames? No, it's not the Thames. Um, well, why not? It's probably the Thames. I don't know. It's, I don't know I think it is the Thames. England rivers. <laughs> but, uh, you know, she's at Oxford. Yeah. Does the Thames go to Oxford? Who yeah, knows? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and... Uh, but anyway, she runs down to the boathouse, hops in the skull, yeah. and rows like crazy uh, for hours, it seems. I'm not even sure if people can do that, but... Yeah, well, anyway, I don't care about the rowing. But the fact of the matter is, it was pretty good, and you were you were skeptical at the beginning, and you were making remarks like, uh, oh, I don't know, uh, you know, this this guy is not going to live up to the hero. He's not as not good looking enough. And as I said to you, that's Matthew Good. Yeah, Matthew yeah. Good is considered the best looking well, actor. He's still in he's, television. He's still um, not my favorite, but um, I, the show was uh, I didn't have to turn it off, and no, you seemed good. rather charmed. I I like it. Yeah, it's nothing to do with the rowing. Uh, and I don't normally go with the witches type so, stuff. So, sucked in once again <laughs> by the small screen. It is a vampire show. It's embarrassing. Yeah, but uh, sucked in. Well, we'll see. We'll watch it again tonight. Speaking of oh, wait, 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 wait. Oh, We should say, so it's at 9 o'clock on uh, BBC America. Yeah, you, know, you know, we have listeners all over the globe. I have to tell right? you. Yes. They don't all have the all right. dish TV. Sorry, I apologize. Plus, the modern generation, no. they can find no, this. No, they can't. I, without uh, I don't think so looking for nothing the about the modern generation shows yet. me that they can find anything I haven't seen that but in any event uh, the other movie we keep saying we're going to see and now you're going to have to see it is Shazam and here's why it turns out that uh, Shazam uh, the actual word Shazam is an acronym it's an acronym did you know that? Shazam is an acronym? no yes Shazam is an acronym uh, for the names of the six immortal elders who are the source of Billy. Billy's the kid. He becomes Shazam. His superpowers. It's the wisdom of Solomon. There's you get your S. The strength of Hercules. The stamina of Atlas. The power of Zeus. The courage of Achilles. And the speed of Mercury. How do you like that? 
Yeah, Alice is not the greatest. Not the point. Is that up your alley or what? Well, yeah, except it's not It's not really... Um, oh, you're captivated. I yeah. knew you would be. Uh, yeah. No, there's an interesting story just generally. People kind of like it. It's kind of a fun movie. But uh, it did come out the same time as Superman shortly thereafter. And, and the reason it got sidelined, it was very popular years and years ago in the 40s. Uh, the people who as, super- a, as a comic book, it was a movie. There was, was a movie, movie in the forties. It was a movie in the forties. Yeah, and, and it was well received. Yes. Okay. And matter of fact, the first comic type movie, comic was Shazam, because uh-huh. they beat Superman to the punch. But the Superman uh, writers uh, sued them for copyright infringement and won because it was too similar to Superman, and that's why it got sidelined for about fifteen or twenty years. So what happened? It came back in a different way. They they worked their way. Through it. And DC Comics eventually got it. It's all corporate nonsense. But the fact of the matter is, they came back and then they ran into another problem because Shazam's real name then was Captain Marvel. By that time, the name Captain Marvel had been sold to uh, probably the Marvel Universe. I can't keep them all straight. But the fact of the matter is, now he's got to be called Shazam. But uh, it was considered too derivative. But it's quite different from Superman. And uh, it's got all these, uh, you know... Hercules, uh, Atlas, all that kind of stuff. So uh, it comes from Atlas a different place. Atlas is like a, he's a big lummox. Really? Yeah. Not, mm. the, not the smartest, uh, right. not the sharpest tool it's only, in the shed. He's only part of the uh, acronym, okay? He's a very small part of the acronym. You know, he goes crazy and... Uh, all right. But I'm sorry I mentioned kills Atlas. Kills a bunch of sheep because he thinks they're, you know... So we will. Greeks. Uh, All right. Well, the, uh, that yeah. was a, clearly a misfire. Kind the of a mess. Uh, the uh, and finally we'll close with an obituary, which is just kind of interesting. But it's another place, another time, and it might as well be the ancient Greeks because it seems so long ago. Uh, Richard Cole Arguably died. Yes. Much more worthy. Oh, no question about that. Richard Cole, yeah. the last survivor of the Doolittle raid on Japan, dies at 103. So the Doolittle raid. So Jimmy Doolittle. Is was a very famous name in U.S. Air Force history, and at a certain point in time, the most famous name in U.S. Air Force history. And why? Because uh, six months or something like that after Pearl Harbor, uh, yeah, that's about right. In April uh, 1942, he led uh, a raid. It was a small raid. It's a small group of airplanes, um, and about uh, 50, uh, oh, 80, 80 different Air Force personnel. Uh, a raid on Japan, uh, and which was kind of considered uh, impossible. Uh, the Japanese were getting the best of it uh, in those first few months of the war, and uh, there was this thought that the uh, Japanese defenses were impenetrable. Certainly, they had a superior air force, and this was sort of a low-key raid uh, launched in secret, and they just they stayed low to, so they wouldn't attract uh, attention in anti-aircraft barrage. And they got through. They got into Japan and they did some damage. Uh, and uh, most of them, most of them uh, got out, uh, but not all of them. Uh, and the deal was that they were supposed to continue into China, which was friendly territory at that time. And some of them made it. Uh, almost all of them crash landed because they're running out of fuel, but they, mm-hmm. they managed to crash in a way that they weren't uh, hurt uh, or hurt badly. But not everyone made it into China, and some were captors, and some were tortured, and some died in captivity, uh, a small number. But uh, it was considered a very successful raid, and actually, in many people's view, uh, turned the war, at least at a certain point in time, uh, early on, and changed the uh, the thinking It led the Japanese to invade Midway, which was a mistake on the part of the Japanese, and, and so on. So it's a long story. There's a um, movie about it called 30 Seconds Over Tokyo, 
in which uh, Spencer Tracy, no, no lesser person than uh, Spencer Tracy, before the war was over, 1944, played uh, Doolittle. And again, Cole was like the second in command. And what's interesting is that the group that was in, uh, part of this mission would get together in reunions every year for many years. And they finally said, you know, the group had winnowed down. They were so old, they had to put an end to it. So the last one, that the last get-together was in 2013. And at that get-together, they uh, had a, uh, a plane, a restored B-25 Mitchell bomber, which is the kind of plane they used, uh, owned by a private owner, a fellow named Larry Kelly. And uh, he flew the plane uh, with Richard Cole. And Richard Cole uh, actually took controls of the plane the entire time. Kelly said to the press afterwards, I told him to hold 1,500 feet on the altimeter uh, to keep that in terms of, you know, the uh, altitude. And I kept looking at the altimeter, and it was 1,500 feet the whole time. It wasn't 1,499. It wasn't 1,501. It was uh, 1,500 uh, feet. Uh, and uh, and apparently Cole landed the plane beautifully, and he got out, and he said, oh, no big deal. It's the same way as it was then. All I did was prove how rusty I am. Um Cole was 97. Mm. Uh, so in any event, uh, a good life, 103. But it's also a reminder of, you know, that within people's lifetime, there were events like this that were of great significance for the country. And it's, it's quite a story. So in any event, uh, that sort of winds it up for us this week. Uh, all we can do is commend you to the National Hockey League playoffs. Uh, You've got a lot of catching up to do. Okay. So on that note, this is Tamson Granger. And Dan Abuhoff. Tamson and Dan read the paper. We'll be back again in a week. Thanks.